Now we get to the man, one of the greatest benefactors of humanity in this or any other age, Sir Francis Bacon, Viscount St. Alban. And he was an incredible man who really laid the foundation for the 400-year massive leap forward in progress characterized by our adoption of science. Science after language and preceding morality is our greatest invention as a species, absolutely has done the greatest good for humanity outside of basic free trade. This man really did lay the foundations of the modern world, and his life is both inspiring, edifying, horrifying, and instructive. At least it has been for me, and uh, I read quite a lot about him in undergraduate and graduate school, so this is going to be a little bit longer, but man, I'm telling you, it's worth it. Because if you want to provide good to the world, this is a model of how to do it. And you don't have to be the best guy in the world to provide a huge amount of good for the world. But, you know, arguably, and I would argue very strongly for this, uh, Francis Bacon is the greatest material manufacturer that the world has ever seen in terms of just bringing science to the modern world. So, I mean, of course, and the greatest horrors, right? Because... Wars used to be localized, they used to be non-mechanized, and had relatively few casualties with the advent of science, plus the state, you get modern warfare and the hundreds of millions killed uh, under modern warfare. But more lives saved than killed, and he's why we're having this conversation. So this conversation is going to be a little bit lengthy about it, but I think it'll be worthwhile. So he was an incredibly talented Man, not just a great thinker and a great writer, but he became a lawyer. He was a statesman. He wrote on moral and practical philosophy, and he was a consummate powerhouse in the English language. And he was a powerful speaker in the House of Parliament, and he argued very powerfully as well in famous trials. He became James I's Lord Chancellor, and uh, he was... A truly a, a mind for the ages and someone to be I'm, respected and admired in, in many ways, with his flaws, which we all have, and we understand that. So let's give uh, a time frame for the guy. He was born January the 22nd, 1561, uh, off the Strand in London at a place called York House, and his father was Sir Nicholas Bacon, and Francis Bacon was the younger of the two sons, and he was born into his uh, father's second Marriage. Now, his father was also a remarkable man, and this is the, the power of meritocracy in society can scarcely be overstated. And rulers love, love, love meritocracy, right? Because rulers love meritocracy because it gives them incredibly talented people who can uh, create wealth uh, for them to tax, who can create weaponry for them to dominate others, who can create complex laws with, through which they can oppress. So rulers love meritocracy, but the problem is the rulers are not a product of meritocracy. Right, the rulers are a product of, in an aristocracy, they're a product of birth, and in a democracy, they're a product of sophistry and indoctrination. So, rulers love meritocracy because it gives them power, but the rulers themselves are not a product of meritocracy. So, so there's that tension. The other ambivalence that rulers have about meritocracy is they love it because it gives them power, but meritocracy is not a gift given by the king, or by the prince, or by the ruler, by the president, by the prime minister. The prime minister or the president or the ruler has to be able to give out gifts, which is the opposite of meritocracy. You have to be able to punish your enemies and reward your friends, which is really the opposite 
of meritocracy in many ways. So there's this real tension between meritocracy and the giving of gifts, which is foundational, or the giving of stolen gifts, which is foundational to political power. The giving of stolen gifts is the opposite of meritocracy, but meritocracy is how you're able to get those gifts from the population in the first place, because meritocracy brings creativity and productivity. So, so Francis Bacon's dad was born pretty poor, but had risen to become Lord Keeper of the Great Seal. So his cousin, uh, Francis Bacon's cousin through his mother, was a fellow named Robert Cecil, later the Earl of Salisbury, and he also became Chief Minister of the Crown at the end of Elizabeth I's reign, and also overlapped in the beginning of James I's, and Cecil will show up further down the story, so just bookmark that in your brain, I'll remind, as, as we come along. So, from 1573 to 1575, Bacon went to Trinity College in Cambridge. Now, here's something quite interesting. Have you ever had it where you feel unwell, and you kind of dislike the world, and everything's going to hell in a handbasket, and there's a disaster, and then the next day you have a good night's sleep, and you feel much better, and the world is a sunbeam of light, and all possibilities are there, and I remember, I think, was it in Bleak House, or one of Dickens's novels, where there's a character who says, you know, I'm not sure if I'm like philosophically negative or just ate a bad potato and my digestion is wrecking hell with me. So this physical discontentedness can actually be quite important to philosophical development. And and the reason I'm saying that is Bacon had a kind of a couple of flaws, a weak constitution, which is probably not his fault, right? Could be anything to do with infection from childhood or some autoimmune thing. So he had a weak constitution. And he was in fairly ill health when he was in university. Now, being in ill health makes you kind of cranky and kind of oppose the world, and that can be a positive thing if the world is worth opposing, which it often is. So he really hated the Aristotelian philosophy that was being taught at Trinity College in Cambridge. And we'll sort of get into that, to the whys and all of that, but uh, he basically viewed his masters, his, his professors, his teachers, as being, you know, locked in cold, damp, empty rooms, staring at flowing texts until their eyes bled under the ham-fisted iron discipline of their intellectual dictator called Aristotle. I, I may be paraphrasing a little, but I think that was the general, the general idea. So, yeah, he really, really hated the Aristotelian philosophy. And this, this is not to say that he hated Aristotle. He hated the dominance that Aristotle had over thinking. And it's important to remember that there had been quite a while, we'll get to this in a sec, it had been quite a while since there had been a good philosopher in England. And when there aren't good philosophers, you get mediocrities, right? The eh, good enough philosopher. You get mediocrities who just repeats other philosophers and considers himself wise. It's always, it's always, always Socrates versus mediocrities, for sure. Now, from 1576 to 1579, Bacon was uh, sent to France as a member of the English ambassador's suite. But then his father died uh, suddenly, and he was recalled to uh, England. And his father, oh gosh, where do we even start? Oof. Uh, people good with abstractions are often not good with money. You know, it's it's famous that doctors are just terrible at managing their money. Artists from Elton John to Billy Joel to Sting they just regularly get pillaged by their accountants and, and so on. And so artists are usually not very good with money. They're good at spending. They're good at creating. They're good at spending, but they're not good at managing 
their money. And the issues that Bacon had with debt, and he actually went to prison in 1598 for debts. Uh, He was just constantly financially embarrassed from being a young man expecting more money from his father's inheritance to pretty much the end of his, his life. So this is his tutors, when we were talking about I sort of wanted to back up what I was saying about Aristotle. So Bacon referred to his tutors, or called his tutors, quote, men of sharp wits shut up in their cells if a few authors, chiefly Aristotle, their dictator. And so he leaned more towards Renaissance humanism over Aristotelianism and what we talked about in the last show before uh, this last one, two, two ago, scholasticism. Now, Renaissance humanism, after I do the history of philosophers, I'll do a history of philosophy the Renaissance humanism is uh, very simply, it's, it's a worship of the beauty that can cre- be created and observed in the world. Saying that, that the, the, the satisfaction of the senses in the pursuit of beauty is one of the highest goods of man, and that you worship God by worshiping the beauty and creating additional beauty in the world of God. That, that human beings and the world and the beauty in the world is the center of philosophy, and we'll get more into that later as a whole, but uh, scholasticism, of course, was the endless analysis of texts rather than the pursuit of facts in the world. So in 1576, Francis Bacon had been admitted as a senior governor of uh, Gray's Inn. So there were four inns of the court that were the institutions for becoming a lawyer for legal education. Gray's Inn was one of them. So in 1579, he went there and got his education, and then he became a barrister, which is the British term for lawyer, give or take. In 1582, he went through a lecturer. He became a lecturer. He became a senior member of the inn called a bencher, and he became, well, I mean, the Queen's Council, and then when the Queen died, 1603, he became the King's Council, and Council Extraordinary, right? So high, high council and then he became Solicitor General, Attorney General, and it was just wild. So but this is about as successful as you can be in the legal environment in this or any other age. But he decided to pursue both philosophical and political ambitions. Now, <laughs> uh, as everyone can remember from my multi-year dip into the political world, you can get some real traction with politics, but it does create some real blowback, and we'll see how that played out. To be tempted by politics is one of the great devils of philosophers, and uh, I'm not saying I've always successfully fought that off, but uh, I, you know, really tried to learn from those who came before me as best, as best I can. So, of course, he did, 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 did the, the politics, uh, legal work, and so on, and he also wrote uh, a, I mean, it, it was a in Latin, it's temporis partis maximus, which is called the greatest part of time. He wrote that in 1582, but it didn't, unfortunately, make it down to the modern age. In 1584, Bacon, well, he was a member of parliament for Malcolm Regis in Dorset, and he represented a bunch of places in England, Taunton, Liverpool, the county of Middlesex, Southampton, Ipswich, many of which I know from my footy days in, in England, and the University of Cambridge. Now, he wrote a letter of advice to the Queen in 1589, as well as a tract called An Advertisement Touching the Controversies of the Church of England. And he really began to expound on his political interests, and 
he was very level-headed and wanted to reconcile opposing positions by, you know, the Venn diagram of finding things in common and ignoring the things that you don't have in common and pretending that you don't have things in pure opposition. It's a typical way of compromise that is often in the realm of appeasement, but I'm not an expert enough on the controversies of the day to speak deeply on that. So in 1593, he took a pee on the third rail of uh, politics. So if you interfere with the government's acquisition of resources, uh, the government will will take its <laughs> toll on you, right? So the Queen was, of course, prosecuting a war against Spain, one of the great conflicts of European history, and one of the things that completely changed European history and got um, a very tall a statue in Trafalgar Square. So the government wanted more subsidies because the war against Spain was very expensive, and he said, no, 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 that's that's a bad idea, this is not a good thing, and so on. And <laughs> Queen Elizabeth, believe it or not, after a rigorous analysis of his arguments and the math behind it, she she took offense. She just got upset. Just got upset. And cast him into the darkness. He was in disgrace. And uh, this is one of the reasons why his legal career didn't advance too, too much, because at the time when his legal career could have advanced the most, he was kind of in disgrace for opposing the Queen's desire for more money to prosecute the war against Spain. Now, we're not sure exactly when, but sometime before July 1591, Francis Bacon became friends with a fellow named Robert Devereux, also known as the young Earl of Essex. Now, the Queen just loved this guy, although she had an issue with him, with uh, Robert Devereux, because he had married the widow of Sir Philip Sidney, and this was not authorized by the aristocracy. So that was that was a challenge. Now, Bacon, I wouldn't say he latched on, but he saw this Robert Devereux, this Earl of Essex, uh, here's a quote, the fittest instrument to do good to the state and offered Robert to become, you know, I'll be your mentor, I'm older, I'm wiser, I'm more skilled, I'm more subtle, I can really help you navigate this stuff. And so Essex took Bacon's advice and tried to appease the Queen's upset about his unauthorized marriage. And then when the Office of Attorney General in England became open, um, Robert said, put Bacon in, put Bacon in, put Bacon in. And unfortunately, that didn't particularly work out. And the Robert was trying to get Francis Bacon into other high offices, but had no luck. And as I mentioned before, 1598, Bacon was imprisoned on account of his debts, and uh, again, a real, a real challenge. Kind of, kind of ironic that he got into trouble with the Queen for saying, "Don't borrow too much," uh, when he ended up in jail because he borrowed too much. Anyway, you know, you can find these contradictions all over the place. They're kind of boring, but you know, vaguely interesting as well. So, in 1598, Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, was sent on an expedition against the Spanish treasure ships, but it did not work out. Uh, he blew it. He had failed. It's hard to know exactly what happened, but he returned kind of in disgrace. And then Francis Bacon said to Robert, you got to really focus your energies on Ireland. The people that are in revolt there, they're rebelling against the crown. You've got to go and, and handle this. And so Robert was sent to Ireland, but panicked when things went badly and returned back to England against orders. Ooh, that's not good if you're in a military situation. So in June of 1600, Francis Bacon was, as the Queen's learned, counsel was part of the trial against 
Essex uh, against Robert Devereux. Now, Essex actually didn't get too upset about this stuff and became, well, at least was on friendly, reasonably friendly terms with the prosecutor of his informal trial, Francis Bacon, after the trial was done. And then things got, got even worse, right? So in 1601, Robert attempted to seize the queen and force her to dismiss his rivals. And this was, I mean, obviously straight up a treason, uh, a traitorous behavior, and Bacon hadn't known anything about this particular plan. And Bacon drew up the official report on this rebellion, uh, and uh, Essex ended up being executed. And, of course, Bacon as his mentor, like back then... And and now it's often the case that if you offer advice out into the world and somebody does bad things who's been following your advice, somehow you're caught up in all of this. And so uh, Bacon, you know, probably kind of freaked out because he's like, oh, the, the guy who was my pupil and my tutor, I was his mentor, I was leading his way, he became a traitor and, and tried to seize the queen. And so he had to write something to distance himself from the affair and he, in 1604, he published the apology in certain imputations concerning the late Earl of Essex and defended Francis Bacon's own actions and so on. And yeah, it's reasonable in terms of self-justification, but what's really interesting is, I mean, he was friends with this guy, he mentored this guy, he was close to this guy, uh, this guy got uh, um, executed for treason, and... Francis Bacon, in a truly Vulcan-like fashion, has no evidence of any personal distress at all about the rebellion and the slaughter of his friend and his, his pupil, so to speak. No distress at all, and that's kind of, kind of strange. And he was not too bad at literary analysis, with a, perhaps a slightly occult bent. So in 1609, Francis Bacon published De Sapientia Veterum, or The Wisdom of the Ancients, and he dove into ancient myths and extracted meanings and, and guides and morals and lessons and so on. And this was just about the most popular book he ever wrote, at least in his own lifetime. And then in 1614, he appears to have written a book called The New Atlantis, which is a sort of scientific utopian work, but that didn't get into print until 1626. So just to rewind for a sec, remember Francis's cousin, cousin through his mother was his fellow Robert Cecil, later Earl of Salisbury, and Robert was the chief minister of the crown at the end of Elizabeth I's reign, and remember, we said he overlapped with the beginning of James I's reign. Now, after Salisbury died in 1612, uh, Bacon, you know, doubled up his, his attempts to get influence with the king, and he wrote a number of papers of advice uh, on matters of politics, affairs of state, and he really focused on the relations between crown and parliament, which is, you know, the fact that you've got to mix a parliament with a hereditary monarchy has always been quite fascinating about England as a whole. So the king read these and listened to these, and Bacon did begin to gain some influence. He removed a fellow from his post as chief justice for the common pleas and appointed Bacon in 1613 attorney general. Now, the fellow, his name was Coke, that the king removed uh, based upon Bacon's advice. This is where you sort of start to make your enemy. So he said, remove this guy Coke from his post, and he did, the king did. 
and he began to get increasingly into conflict with this Coke fellow, right? So Coke was really keen on the common law, the independence of the judges, and Bacon's views said were more along the lines of the the, the royal prerogative that the king should should rule more. And uh, it's it's it was it was a pretty rough battle. It was kind of a famous case at the time. A fellow named Edmund Peacham, and this was a clergyman, and he was to be charged with treason because people said he was the author of an unpublished paper that said, if oppression becomes too great, you're justified in rebelling against it. And so the king ordered the judges to be consulted individually and, and separately, like in an isolated way, with regards to this case. Is it fair to proceed with an unpublished manuscript that justifies rebellion against what was perceived as tyranny? Is that, is that an okay thing for the king to do? Now, Bacon cross-examined Coke, his sort of enemy, with regards to this. And Bacon, just by the by, Bacon actually took part in the examination of Peacham, the, the clergyman who was accused of this. And the examination was under torture. And, you know, we're talking, you know, 16th century torture, pretty primitive, is like way worse than waterboarding. So, yeah, he took part in the examination while being tortured of Peacham. And, of course, as torture generally is the case, it, they didn't really get anything out of him. People would just say anything to make the pain stop, and it doesn't really mean anything. Now, Bacon said to Coke and the other judges to not proceed until they had spoken to the king. Right, So the king's prerogative, as opposed to the independence of the judiciary, was kind of a battle at, at this point. Now, Coke defied this order and was dismissed, and then Bacon was appointed as Lord Keeper of the Great Seal in March of 1617. In 1618, he was made Lord Chancellor and Baron Verulam, and in, he was created Viscount, Viscount St. Albans in 1620-1621. So, like, I mean, Rand's really stepping up the ladder here, and, of course, at the expense and creating the enemies of other people. While all of this is going on, let's talk 12 years, between 1608 and 1620, he worked on at least 12 drafts of the Novum Organum, which is his most celebrated work. I mean, he was a little obsessive, and this is a legal thing too, like you work on draft after draft after draft, and I, I, I really admire that level of attention to detail. I really do. I think it's a wonderful thing. I don't share it at all myself. I'm very much a blurb, <laughs> you know, sort of get it out, get moving. But this real focus on attention to detail, 12 drafts is really, really something. He also worked several philosophical works, more of a minor sense, but. Now, the Novum Organum was published in 1620. And this was a radical, famous, powerful book, which we'll get into a little bit more. We'll sort of get through his life as a whole. Because basically, Francis Bacon said, look, we got to reorganize these sciences completely. And we can't be at the mercy of nature anymore. I mean, this is a guy who was at the mercy of his health throughout his life. We can't be at the mercy of nature anymore. So Adam was in charge of nature. Nature served Adam. Adam, through Satan, through Eve, was cast out of Eden and then became subject to the enslavement of nature, nature's slave. Humanity was turned into nature's slave. We got to get the mastery over nature that we lost with the original sin and the fall of Adam, and he gave a plan, which we'll get into, about how to do that. Now, we get to 1621. 
two charges of bribery raised against Francis Bacon. And this was, I mean, was it true? Was it valid? It certainly came as a shock. Remember, we were saying that Bacon, like a lot of people, really great with abstractions and not great with with wealth. So yeah, wealth comes in, wealth goes out, like the tide. He wasn't really taking much, paying much attention to all of that, and he wasn't aware that he was vulnerable in this way. And these are the two men whose cases had gone against them, in spite of the gifts that they had made, with the goal of getting the goal, uh, getting the, the the trial to go their way. Now the House of Lords, you know, when the dam breaks, the dam breaks. The House of Lords collected another 20 or so complaints against Francis Bacon taking bribes. Now, Bacon, I mean, court, right, the, the ledgers, the, the witnesses, uh, and, and of course the multiplicity, you know, it's, it's one thing, right? I mean, if a, if a woman accuses a man of some sexual impropriety, if you can find other women who've never communicated with him who talk about the same kind of thing, it lends some credence. So, I mean, I think he was kind of pinned in court. So he had said, okay, look, I did, I did take the gifts. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deny that. But, but those gifts never affected my judgment. And of course, you know, I can imagine he was up for a week solid, uh, going over his notes. He wrote notes on all these cases, and he sought to make his claim to the king in the hope that the king would intervene. But the king refused to see him. And of course, saying I took the gifts, but it didn't affect my judgment, well, of course, one of those is empirical, right? Did you take the gifts while you were in charge of legal matters? Did you take gifts from people who were supplicants in a case, defense or prosecution, right? right? Yes, yes, I took the gifts, but it didn't affect my judgment. Well, the moment you say I took the gifts, you're done, right? Because you can verify whether the gifts were given or not, but you can't possibly verify whether the judgment was affected, right? That, that you can't verify because there's no alternate universe where the gifts weren't given and so on, right? So he was kind of caught. Now, based on the legal system at the time, he couldn't say, okay, there's more or less serious charges here. He couldn't cross-examine the witnesses, so he just pled, pled out. He pled guilty. He resigned the seal of his office and obviously crossed his fingers and hoped that that would be enough, but it wasn't. There was a fine of forty thousand pounds. That's a truly staggering sum, and he was hurled into the Tower of London. As long as the king wanted him to be there, he was barred from holding any state office, and he was barred from even setting foot in Parliament and what's called the verge of court, which was about twelve miles radius, centered on where the sovereign is resident. Right, so the king obviously didn't want him knocking on the windows or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, he was completely uh, broken, deplatformed, I guess one could say, but of course with the criminal um, situation as well. So so Bacon commented, uh, uh, quote, I acknowledge the sentence just and for reformation's sake fit the justice chancellor that hath been in the five changes since Sir Nicholas's Bacon's time. Now, he didn't actually stay too long in the tower, but of course the ban or the ostracism from the king's region cut him off from access to the library of Charles Cotton, which was a famous English man of letters. And also, he couldn't even go and see his own physician, which was uh, pretty bad. And the Lord Treasurer wouldn't pay Francis Bacon his pension payments. 
So this is it's a wild thing, right? So this guy is totally flying high, master of all he surveys, went from a family two generations removed from obscurity and poverty all the way to the top of the legal and political profession, or at least close to the top, top of legal for sure. And then he's, he's careless, he's distracted, right? He's working on these big ideas, these big arguments, 12 drafts of the Nova Morganum, and his enemies find a wedge. They find a way in, and they, you know, I, he took the gifts. Now, again, did he say he took the gifts because he couldn't cross-examine the witnesses, or did he just want to get it behind him? Uh, and uh, so and did he hope that by confessing, uh, taking the gifts, that the punishment would be less? Who knows? I mean, you can't read the guy's mind. But he fell from grace in a Luciferian spectacular fashion. Now, let's go back in time for a second. Let's just think about this, right? Was it better for the world that he was cast out of politics? Was it better for the world that he was cast out of public office, cast out of the law, cast out of favor with the king? Absolutely. <laughs> That's the funny thing about trying to decide what's good or bad in life. This is why I won't say that I'm stoic in this kind of way, but I'm very much of the it's too soon to tell. I, mean, I didn't obviously face anything as bad as this guy, but yeah, I got deplatformed. Is that better or worse? It's too soon to tell. <laughs> I mean, maybe in 100 years or 200 years or 500 years, they'll be able to tell. But it's, too, it's too soon for me to tell. And jumping to the conclusion of this is good or this is bad, hmm, of, of the, literally the billions of people who owe their life to Francis Bacon's materialistic philosophy for his development and exp expounding of the modern scientific method, would they rather he have kept his political career at the expense of their lives? No. Billions of people's lives were saved or created because Francis Bacon got kicked out of politics. Oh, it's tough, man. It's tough. Of course, he didn't want it to happen. And, you know, it could have been unjust. It could have been just. Who knows, right? Seems a little, it's a little precious, and of course he's under severe legal pressure, right? It seems a little precious to say, oh yeah, yeah, I took all these gifts, but man, it didn't affect my judgment at all. And also, it seems a little precious to say, I didn't even know these people had given me stuff. If he did say that, like, oh, I don't really know, tide comes in, tide comes out, who knows what it contains, kind of thing. So, after Bacon's political career got sky-thumped, you know, Bambi versus Godzilla style, he remained in St. Albans, and then what he did because he was involuntarily retired, he really focused on the philosophy of science. This is one of his other great passions. Now, this is all the way from his, his days back in, in university. He's like, we, we've got to re completely redo how we view the sciences, how we view natural philosophy. So he said, empiricism is the key. And I'm paraphrasing a little, and... and you can find exceptions, but this is the general thrust of things. This is what came out of what people read. You know, it's one thing to say this is what you wrote. It's another thing to say this is its effect on the world, right? The two is not always the same. Trust me, <laughs> that one I know pretty well, right? So he said, tangible proof in a material empirical form, access through the evidence of the senses, is how we push science forward. Experiment, hypothesis, experimentation, interacting, culminating in what he termed the commerce of the mind with things. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. The commerce of the mind with things. What an incredible seven words. The commerce of the mind with things. 
right? Because the mind doesn't go for things in the Platonic universe, right? It goes to forms. It doesn't go to mere things out there in the world. It goes inwards and deep to forms. The commerce of the mind with the soul, with God's will, with the heavens, with the words of Aristotle, with the writings of the sophists, with the examination of every single syllable and comma in the scholastic tradition. No, no, no. Stop looking inward. Stop looking at the minds of others. Stop looking to other dimensions. The commerce of the mind with things. The purpose of the mind is to understand things. And the commerce, now I know that the word commerce has changed a little bit since his day, but if we look at it now, that mind engaging with things has a commercial aspect to it. And I mean this in the very most positive way, that everything that we are using to have this conversation is commercial in nature. My, my microphone recording, you're playing whatever you're playing it on. That when the mind interacts with things and the purpose of the mind is to analyze and understand the categories of things, there's great profit. The commerce of the mind with things. Oh, so good. So he said, look, you got to gather a bunch of data and then you got to analyze it and you got to perform experiments in an organized way. It should be a community. I mean, one of the things he talked about in terms of communities ended up with the foundation of the Royal Society, which is very important for spreading science and theories and methods and so on. And he said, look, if, if we take this approach, gather a bunch of data, analyze it really, really carefully, share it with others, perform experiments, and also perform experiments to disprove your hypothesis, right? So if you say everything falls, grabbing a bunch of things and watching them fall has some value. But if you say everything falls, you have to explain the things that don't fall or that actually go up, right? So look for the opposite as well, because in the opposition is greater knowledge than simply conformity, right? And this is true. I mean, the, sh the sword is sharpened by the whetstone, and if you don't encounter opposition, if you live in an echo chamber, then your mind will simply not get sharpened. You will become a porridge head. And tragically, and this is not any sort of strength or weakness of the left or the right, but the left is so dominant in culture and education that to be not on the left is to be, is to be in the presence of opposition. To be on the left, you can completely seal yourself up and never encounter an opposing idea. So, Lauren Isley was a biographer. This is the description of Bacon's mania. Oh, so mania is too strong. His, his um, focus on developing this, this new scientific method. So, Bacon, quote, more fully than any man of his time entertained the idea of the universe as a problem to be solved, examined, meditated upon, rather than as an eternally fixed stage upon which man walked. And Bacon said, look, if you take this empirical scientific method and you apply it consistently, it will spark a light in nature that would, and I quote, eventually disclose and bring into sight all that is most hidden and secret in the universe. So the universe is not just something we watch, right? We don't just, you know, we'll, we'll plant our crops and we'll hope for rain. We do not just pass it. We just, like, we'll plant our crops. Well, we're, we're not going to just watch the universe. We're going to get in there. We're going to take it apart. We're going to figure it out. And through that process, we gain mastery over the universe. And this brings us closer to God because it helps undoes the sin of disobedience from the Garden of Eden. So, obviously, read the Novum Organum if you want, but the scientific method that he presented in this says, okay, start with the tables of investigation, right? Start to analyze and understand things in the world through the evidence of the senses. And then proceed to what he called the table of presence, Okay, so list all of the circumstances 
under which whatever you're studying tends to occur. Now, then the table of absence in proximity. Okay, so what doesn't happen that you say should happen or what? when does the opposite happen against what you say should happen? Okay, so then you go to the table of comparison. You compare and contrast the severity or degree of whatever it is that you're studying. So you go through these steps and then you've got to do a survey to try and figure out the possible cause of the occurrence. Now, Bacon was not massive on the importance of testing the theory. He said you observe and you analyze, and that's going to produce greater comprehension, or what he called the ladder of axioms, and that in sharing this with your community, other minds will reach even greater understanding. So just rewind for a second here, late 1580s onwards, decades before his fall from grace, this Earl of Essex fellow who ended up being uh, executed. And he really did work on natural philosophy. And he wrote a letter, a fairly famous letter, to his uncle, Lord Burghley, in 1592. And he said, this is Francis Bacon, he said, I confess that I have as vast contemplative ends as I have moderate civil ends. For I have taken all knowledge to be my province, and if I could purge it of two sorts of rovers, whereof the one with frivolous disputations, confutations, and verbosities, the other with blind experiments and auricular traditions and impostures, hath committed so many spoils, I hope I should bring in industrious observations, grounded conclusions, and profitable inventions and discoveries. The best state of that province. So he's talking about frivolous disputations, confutations, and verbosities. That's the scholastic tradition of analyzing texts. Blind experiments and traditions and impostures, just doing stuff without analyzing it or sharing it or trying to disprove it. And this would be the alchemists and so on. So he says, this, whether it be curiosity or vainglory or nature, or if one take it favorably, philanthropia, is so fixed in my mind as it cannot be removed. And I do easily see that place of any reasonable countenance doth bring commandment of more wits than of a man's own which is the thing I greatly affect. All right, so this kind of study, this rigorous approach, this sharing of information, this analysis of data with the goal of providing a theory, that's going to bring more intelligence than any individual man. Now, in the world of science and the world of intellectualism of Bacon's day, there was a huge amount to be opposed. I mean, it, it, in the modern world, the, the more enemies you have, the tougher it is to overcome them, obviously. In the past, UPB would have o- had to overcome or supplement Christian morality as a whole. I mean, talking about the Catholic break with the Orthodox and then the Protestant break with the Catholics and so on. But now, uh, morality is both relativistic and subjectivist. It's both utilitarian and pragmatic. It's altruistic idealism. It's atheist materialism. It's still religious influences. There's so many multiplicities of morality that UPB is like, you know, Bruce Lee at the center of an endless wave or seemingly endless wave of combatants. And that then that the Marxist resentment morality, the younger sibling, it ain't fair, the screams of the cry bullies and so on, it's a lot. And that Bacon, at the same time, had a lot to overcome when it came to the examination of, or, or the promotion of this more objective and empirical scientific method. I mean, he went hard against Plato, he went hard against Aristotle and the Aristotelians as a whole, 
he also went, he, he was keen on the Renaissance, but more in terms of art. He opposed the humanistic scholars uh, such as Para, Paracelsus, uh, Bernardino Telicio, and so on. He went hard against these guys because he said, look, you're not focusing enough on empirical observation and strictness, right? Because all the people who were like, oh, I love art and nature is so beautiful and truth is beauty and beauty is truth and that's all you need to know or all you ever need to know and so on. It's a little bit after this time, but all of these people who just had the hedonism of the senses and he's like, no, 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 it'll be the discipline of the senses. So he had to focus really, really on that. So although Aristotle was the guy who, you know, sushi katana samurai style did slice and dice intellectual disciplines into component parts and and well right aristotle was the guy who did metaphysics he broke philosophy into metaphysics and epistemology and ethics and all that and so aristotle did provide some basic categorizations for scientific discipline but what bacon said is look aristotle did not create a general theory of science he he would divide science into various things but he didn't say how you pursue science in the most productive and objective manner, right? Science that you could apply to every branch of natural history, every branch of science, and so on, and in philosophy at the time as well. Now, Aristotle's view of the world, right, these these layers, right? Aristotle's like, oh, there are these elements, and the top element is is fire, so fire jumps up uh, because it wants to rejoin the element of fire, and, and the bottom is like the earth, and things fall to the earth because they want to rejoin the earth and so on. Look, that's obsolete. That's done, right? And and everybody who's trapped in that way of thinking is not empirical. In other words, the empiricism of science should be the empiricism of nature, of examining things through the evidence of the senses. The empiricism of science is not, oh, what did Aristotle say? The empiricism of another man's thought is not empiricism. It's a textual analysis, and it can be fine for sure, but it's not science. It's not science to read what Aristotle said and try and do it that way. And again, at the risk of oversimplifying, where do concepts exist? Where are they? Where are they? For Plato, concepts exist in another dimension. For Aristotle, concepts exist in the thing itself. For Bacon, concepts exist in the mind and must be strictly disciplined by the evidence of the senses. So when Bacon wrote The Advancement of Learning in 1605, he's really hacking at classical antiquity. And this book learning of the humanists who focus on art, who focus on words, who focus on sculpture and painting and so on, and the scholastics. And so one of the arguments he had against the book people was he said they hunt, they hunt more after words than matter, right? They hunt more after words than matter. That's really, really important. And you can see this happening right now. You can see this, this same focus right now. If you look at the feminists, right, they say... Well, there's this patriarchy, and women are underpaid, and women are unfair, and women are uh, uh, women are unfairly treated. And you can see this happening right now. People dive into books; they dive into works. So, uh, a woman who may not feel particularly unjustly treated, particularly as a young woman, she may feel actually quite elevated and and worshipped and pursued and praised. But she goes to university and she gets into all of these books and these texts about how terrible her life is, how she's exploited, there's a patriarchy, and women are, are cast down and oppressed, and there's a wage gap, and, and all this kind of stuff, and, and she gets lost in these words rather than just the empirical facts. And you can see, of course, economists as a whole constantly pushing back against this myth of the wage gap, that the women are paid less because men are you know, evil patriarchs and, and denigrate women. That's the, those are the words on the page, and then the 
economists and others go out into the world and say, okay, let's look at the facts. Uh, let's compare apples to apples. Let's look at unmarried men and women who've been in the workforce for the same amount of time. Oh, women are actually paid slightly more. So they look at the facts. So we have, we're in a scholastic phase. This is one of the reasons I wanted to do this history. Like we're in a phase of scholasticism where people try to figure out workers versus owners, right? The, the, the owners of the means of production versus the proletariat and the workers, right? In the Marxist analysis. Now, they don't go out into the world and say, let's do an analysis. Let's go talk to the workers. Let's go talk to the managers. Let's try and figure out how much each works. Let's go figure out whether the managers even want to be workers or the workers even want to be managers. Let's do an analysis of what's actually going on, where the profit lies and the risk and so on. Uh, because when you're a manager, you face much more risk than if you're a worker, right? If, if you're a manager, or an owner of a business and the business goes uh, bankrupt, then you could face serious issues, lawsuits and, and debt and so on, whereas the worker simply has to go and find another job. So let's compare all of this sort of stuff and try and figure out whether there is exploitation or not. Now, going out into the world and learning about things for real, getting facts and analyzing them according to principles, that's not where we are in the social sciences at all anymore. We're in a scholastic realm where you can just sit in a library, make up whatever you want, and it never has to be touched or verified by empirical evidence. Ever. I mean, look at communism as a whole. 100 million people killed under communism. It's still a perfect discipline for many people and still an ideal to be treasured and pursued because they're in a world of books. They're in a world of ideas unconnected to empirical tests. Unconnected. And in fact, opposed to empirical tests, even though it's called scientific communism, or at least it was in the past. People don't really believe that as much anymore. So Bacon is trying to pry people out of libraries and pry people out of white off whiteboards and pry people out of the classrooms and saying, look, go out into the world. If you want to learn about the world, go out into the world. And I mean, it's one of the great benefits and graces of my philosophical education that I've been out into the world. You know, I've, I've done sort of hard physical labor for many years. I've been a business owner. I've been an employee. I've sort of seen all spectrums and sides of the economic transactions. Of course, everyone's a customer, but to be a business owner and, and be that side of things. So I actually have a huge amount of facts. I've also been an artist and, and a playwright and a novelist and a poet. And so I've explored the art world. So I've got a lot of facts and experiences that, you know, people who spend their times in libraries just don't have just don't have. So I, I really wanted to point that out, that Bacon has, is powerful to me because he's opposing mere book learning where you can be twisted in and out of anything, right? You go out into the world, you actually have to deal with facts. But if you stay in books, you only have to deal with people's opinions. Yes, you can make a case that there's a wage gap and it's, a, it's out of patriarchy, for sure, because you can find mean men who underpaid women, yes, and who hate women, yeah, absolutely, but those aren't, those are somebody's selective interpretation of reality, right? And, and thinking that you know reality by reading books is like thinking you know physics because you have dreams at night. You don't. You don't know reality because you follow people on Twitter or, or Facebook or wherever. Or you read books or you listen to the media. The media is presenting you just about every, I try my very best to present a 360 view, right? But people in the media are pushing a narrative. There's no art out there that does not part of propaganda at the moment. There's no art out there that is not part of propaganda by any sort of major studio with significant investment. Because it's just not worth it. There's too many opposed groups who will uh, attack and hack and boycott and undermine and, and, and dox and swat and deplatform. Like, it's just not worth it. So you're not getting any facts from just about anyone when you're just looking at 
what they're saying and so on, right? Now, you go out into the world, right, rather than reading about feminism or reading about Marxism or reading about this, that, or the other, go out into the world, talk to people, gather information. I worked under a whole bunch of people who were like, oh my God, the boss has the worst life in the world. I worked in a restaurant where the boss would sometimes throw up after lunch because he was so stressed. And, and there was a lot of eye rolling, like oh, who, would, who on earth would want that job? That would, I, I, would, I would never, ever want that job. I'd rather throw myself off a bridge than have the job of manager. And then, then you, so that was my experience. And then you go to books and it's like, oh, the evil capitalists are all exploiting the workers. And it's like, but that's not what I saw. That's not what's out there in the world. A lot of contempt for managers out there in the world and a lot of there, but for the grace of God, go on. You couldn't pay me enough to do that job no matter what. And there's a lot of managers who look at the employees. You know, I had a bunch of, I had two kinds of employees when I was a, a chief technical officer. There were the employees and, and to be fair, a lot of them were women with kids and I had no issue with that. Go home, spend time with your kids. You know, 4.59, they're packing up. Five o'clock, they're out the door. And then there were a lot of single young men and I was not quite young, but certainly single back then, who would, you know, we'd stay late, we'd, we'd order some pizza in, we'd play a couple of uh, games uh, uh, on the LAN, uh, we'd, we'd work on some coding issues, and then maybe we'd go see a movie later. And so there was just a lot of, you know, some people got out as quickly as possible, and some people worked uh, later or played later or whatever. So the people who were leaving would see the boss the boss's light in his office still on and be like, oh, I guess the boss can't leave. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not the boss, right? So, but then, but then they'd go down to the parking lot and they see the boss has a really nice car and they're driving a Ford Focus or whatever and they'd be like, so there's, there's it's not simple to unravel. It's exploitation, right? Exploitation. And of course, for young men to look at young women and see young women constantly being taken out and applied with free gifts and trips and dinners and, and pursuit and and getting a million likes because they wear a low-cut top while talking about economics or whatever. Who knows, right? Like if you're a gamer and you're, you know, overweight with a neck beard and you're a gamer and you're a, a young woman with big boobs, I mean, we all know, right? We all know who's going to... So then saying, well, women are just oppressed. and so, It's tough. It's really, really tough to unravel this kind of stuff just reading opinions. You've got to go out in the world and you've got to get the facts. Talk to people and... and get get reality so hunt more after words than matter hunt more after words than facts and once once you've been indoctrinated confirmation bias is an inevitability it's indoctrination we think is in the past no indoctrination chooses what you pursue in the future so if you're indoctrinated into resentful feminism then you will follow resentful feminists you will like it's about the future it's about the information you exclude and the information that you pursue I mean, it's like literally you you put on rose-colored glasses, everything has a rose-colored tinge to it. Propaganda is not about conditioning the mind in the past. It's about making sure that contrary information is viewed as an enemy, right? So you say, this is the virtue, right? This perspective is virtuous and all other perspectives are evil, right? This is this is, this perspective is, is caring and other perspectives are fascist. Anything which opposes you, anyone who opposes you is evil, right? And then people are, are locked in. So, let's talk about the idols, not of the Billy kind. But the idols are very, very interesting. So, he was good with analogies as well. And this is really important. To be right is important, 
to be convincing is also important because if you're right but not convincing, it's really just a pain in the ass to be right because you're just alienating people around you. If you're convincing without being right, you're probably going to be put slap dab in the surface of evil, but to be both right and convincing is a double superpower that, uh, well, creates great benefits and great uh, blowback, right? So we'll, we'll get to the idols, but here's, here's an analogy that's incredibly powerful, right? He said, look, when you look at traditional metaphysicians, right, the, the people who are, oh, there's the forms and there's the uh, ideal universe and, and concepts are out there in some other dimension and so on. He says, look, this is like, they're like spiders because everything they say is unconnected to things in the world. And so they're like spiders who spin these incredibly complicated webs that just float in the air. And spiders, of course, produce their webs from material that's from within their own bodies. So these incredibly elaborate webs, unconnected to anything that are produced within themselves from their own materials. I mean, I don't know, the coarse modern would be somebody who likes the smell of their own thoughts or something like that, right? Now he said... The people who just gather data, the empirics, like the alchemists, well, they're like ants. So they, they gather all this stuff together, but they never produce anything new from it. They just consume it. But scientists should be like the bees. So they gather together new material, they go out and get the pollen, they get all this kind of cool stuff, but then they digest and transform it into honey. That is the key. Go out into the world, gather things, and use the power of your mind to transform them into useful principles for other people. Don't be a spider just spinning crap in the air from your own body. Don't just gather material together, consume it, and never produce anything new. Go out there, get the facts, transform them into theories, share those so that other people can refine and improve them and you can gain mastery back over nature. That is fantastic. So the people who've been in charge of science in the past, says Bacon, quote, have been either men of experiment or men of dogmas. The men of experiment are like the ant. They only collect and use. The reasoners resemble spiders, which make cobwebs out of their own substance. But the bee takes a middle course. It gathers its material from the flowers of the garden and of the field, but transforms and digests it by a power of its own. Not unlike this is the true business of philosophy, for it neither relies solely or chiefly on the powers of the mind, nor does it take the matter which it gathers from natural history and mechanical experiments and lay it up in the memory hole as it finds it, but lays it up in the understanding altered and digested. Therefore, from a closer and purer league between these two faculties, the experimental and the rational, such as never yet been made, much may be hoped." Use the power of your mind to transform the evidence of your senses into conceptual theories. Wow. The commerce of mind with things. You get the profit of knowledge and understanding and principles, which gives you power over nature from gathering together and extracting concepts from observation and testing them. Although, again, testing wasn't huge on him, but, you know, you can't get everything right in in this life. It's a... And... And this is, this is unbelievably new. 
to subject the discipline of the mind to the evidence of the senses without being a slave to the senses, to generate new concepts from the evidence of the senses that must be bound by confirmation by the evidence of the senses. Boom. That's the modern world, man. That's science. That's what produces unbelievable upward spike in human progress over the last 400 years. I mean, just think, 400 years. What have we got? Everything. With quantum mechanics, anesthetics, electricity, we understood magnetism, computers, spaceship, space travel, satellites. We've got to the atomic theory, the subatomic theory. We've got all the way to the edge of the universe. We send probes past Pluto. We've walked on the moon. We've traveled all the way to the bottom of the oceans. And we now know how life evolved and, and how the solar system was formed. And now they even know where Saturn's rings come from. And they'll be gone in 100 million years. I mean, it's wild how much we've learned. And this whole conversation is only possible because of that. And it comes out of... Francis Bacon saying, oh, stop looking at books and stop just gathering nature to use it. So gathering nature to use it is like, okay, I need to build a house. I'll cut down some trees. I'm going to use the trees. But you don't have a theory of forests. You don't have a theory of cells. You don't have a theory of photosynthesis. You don't have a theory of anything. You're just using nature like ants use things up. You're not generating anything new. Get data, record it rigorously, look for counterexamples, develop theories, test them by sharing them. So... He said, and this is very interesting as well, Bacon said, on wax and tablets, you cannot write anything new until you rub out the old. With the mind, it is not so. There, you cannot rub out the old till you have written in the new. Right, so we, and this is, this is true, right? This is what I've said with my big criticism of, of atheism, right? That atheism destroyed Christian theology and Christian morality without giving a new morality, which is horrifying, right? In Aphorism X1X, what's that, 19? Of Book 1 in Novum Organum, Bacon writes, and I quote, There are and can be only two ways of searching into and discovering truth. The one flies from the senses and particulars to the most general axioms. And from these principles, the truth of which it takes for settled and immovable proceeds to judgment and to the discovery of middle axioms. And this way is now in fashion. The other derives axioms from the senses and particulars, rising by gradual and unbroken ascent so that it arrives at the most general axioms. Last of all, this is the true way, but as yet untried. Right, so what is he saying here? Two ways of searching into and discovering truth, he says, right? The one flies from the senses and particulars to the most general axioms. Ah, okay. So this is saying, I, I know a couple of chairs, and so there's this, abstract ideal chair in the world of forms in another dimension. And then it says, okay, so I've seen a couple of chairs. I know that they're chairs because of the ideal of chairs, so now I can go and study chairs, right? So he's saying, senses in particular to the most general axioms, definitions of a chair, and from these principles, the truth of which it takes for settled and immovable, then we can judge categories of furniture and so on, right? And he says, this is the way it is. You go from, you leap to these universals, from a couple of instances, and then you try and categorize everything from there. But no, 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 wrong, wrong, wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You can't build the top of a pyramid till you built the bottom of the pyramid. He said the other, this is the way he's suggesting, derives axioms from the senses and particulars, rising by gradual and unbroken ascent so that it arrives at the most general axioms last of all. Don't build your castles in air and then build rope ladders down to the clouds. And this is early on. Cogitata et Visa, 1607. He was already talking about the scientific method and induction, right? 
So I write about this in my book, Art of the Argument. You can get this at artoftheargument.com. Deduction and induction, right? So uh, deduction is the famous syllogism, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Induction is the gathering together of principles by trends in particular objects. So the induction reasoning is to say, like you've got a neighbor and she, you know she's got 20 cats and 19 of her cats are out there and all the cats are black. All the cats are black. Now, can you guess or do you have a probability of guessing the color of the 20th cat that you haven't seen? Well, clearly she has a predilection for black cats and therefore you can say with reasonable certainty that the 20th cat is black too. You can't prove it in the way, way that you know for sure that Socrates is mortal because Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, but it's, it's drawing principles from instances. Now, did he invent induction as a whole? Uh, you know, obviously we, we use that to, to a large degree as a whole, but you, you, you look, you can't prove. You, you, go, you go into a room, you walk into a room, you can't know for certain that there's going to be air in that room. I mean, just based on Brownian motion, all of the air, or at least all the oxygen atoms, could have just gone to the top, and you, you just go in and, right? But you know, you never really think, I hope when I go into this room, that I could breathe, right? I hope that you go in. We don't do that, right? When we grab things, you know, there's a one in 20 lifetimes possibility that you're going to grab something and none of the atoms are going to touch and you're just going to pass right through it. But you never think about that, right? So this that's kind of induction, right? Every room you go into has had air. Every room you've ever heard of has air. Everyone you've ever known has gone into rooms and there's air. So he's saying we get our principles from the evidence in front of us. And you get slow and patient building up of concepts from instances, and the concepts are always dictated by the instance. So he said, so he reputes the, the syllogistic method, right? The syllogistic method is to just focus on pure reason, and it leads you straight to Platonism in general. And he says, no, 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 this is a quote, which by slow and faithful toil gathers information from things and brings it into understanding, it's a lot more work, frankly. It's a lot more fun to just sit there and spin your cobwebs in the air from the product of your own mind. To sit in a dark room and daydream about the forms is a lot easier than going out and trying to actually categorize things in the world and develop theories. So, 1620 in the Novum Organum, he noted that, quote, Of induction, the logicians seem hardly to have taken any serious thought, but they pass it by with a slight notice and hasten to the formula of disputation. I, on the contrary, reject, reject a demonstration by syllogism. Well, what can you prove by syllogism? Only things within your own mind. Only things in the realm of the forms or nirvana or whatever, right? So an analogy popped into my head, which is if you ask these metaphysicians, these Aristotelians, these scholastics, to stop studying books and go out and experiment in nature, it's like asking kids with gripping video games to go play outside. Oh, do we have to? Because, you know, they're addicted to the video games. They're addicted to the thoughts. They're addicted to the reflections of other people's minds. And they don't have to get up and do anything. They just have got to sit there and ponder. Going outside and studying the world is tough. Now, Bacon did not overly focus on mathematics. And mathematics, of course, is hugely important to 
modern science with its quantum phenomena and so on, right? So I get all of that, and that's perfectly valid to say. But, of course, he was dealing with sense data. And sense data is empiricism, and because he couldn't tunnel into the substrata of sense data, into atoms, and, and he didn't have electron microscopes and so on, because he couldn't tunnel into the substrata of sense data, he was working with empiricism, and empiricism requires much less mathematics than once you can tunnel into the substrata of data and see things that are invisible to the naked eye and so on, right? So he said, look, you can't get facts from nature. You can't just look at a bunch of things and daydream about knowing them in their entirety through the world of forms or concepts independent of matter. So you got it slow and patient, right? Slow and patient. The rabbit and the tortoise, right? Rabbit runs all over the place. The tortoise is slow and patient and wins the modern world. So you've got to have methodical procedures to generalize patterns that you see in the world, that everyone sees in the world, to generalize patterns and then make predictions and look for counterexamples for sure. So the process of induction necessarily requires that you look for counterexamples. Everything falls. Well, what about the things that don't fall? What about the things that rise? Fire rises, clouds hang in the air, birds fly. Um, I don't know if they had helium back then, but helium balloons go up. We understand all of that, right? So if you're going to work with induction, which is to generalize principles from specific instances without certain absolute proof across the universe in the way that you'd have with a syllogism, if you're going to work with induction, you've got to look at the counterexamples. Otherwise, it's just confirmation bias, and you've not really learned anything. Or you've not learned anything that isn't obvious to everyone, right? Ooh, things fall. Wow, you know, I mean, dogs know that. Babies know that. So looking for counterexamples is how we get to non-obvious principles, knowledge, and wisdom. So Bacon referred to like the book of God and the book of nature, right? So the book of nature, don't just read it. Don't just read it, which is his critique of the scholastics and to some degree the humanists and certainly the Aristotelians. But examine and explore. It's not, you're not a passive observer of nature. You want to get in, you want to unpack it, you want to understand the principles. Now, there's the book of God, which is a, a different matter. Now, studying the mind of God is, is all fine for the theologians and so on, but if we want to restore ourselves to God's graces pre-fall of Adam, we have to study and understand nature. Read the book of nature and, in a sense, step into the story, make it a living story. The book of God is trying to understand God's will. The book of nature is trying to understand God's works. And can you really understand God's will without understanding God's works? Well, you can sit in your room in the dark with a blindfold on and you can meditate on God's will. But how will you ever know if you're right? What do you do with people who disagree with you? And what's the counterexample that's empirical to your theory? No, no, no. If you want to understand God's will, God's mind, go out and study God's works. Now, when philosophy has lain fallow, it's like a field that has lain fallow. It is incredibly fertile if you plant anything. And so how did Bacon come up with this amazing stuff? Well, we won't ever know for sure, but one of the things was that it was kind of a philosophical vacuum in England in the early 17th century, right? So William of Ockham, who we talked about before, he was the last great English philosopher. He died in 1347. That's two and a half centuries before. John Wycliffe, who was second tier but still important, died in 1384. So 
it was boring, it was stale, it was old, and there was not a challenge to the existing mental constructs. There was not a challenge to those things. And so that boredom and impatience that comes with hearing the same stale stuff over and over again, and a lack of progress as well. If you look at the progress in the 400 years since Bacon, look at the progress 400 years before, listen, there had been progress in the practical arts. There had been progress in, in sculpture. There had been progress in painting. There had been progress uh, in, in literature. And there had been progress in agriculture, which was pretty important and laid the foundation, as I've said many times, for the Industrial Revolution in the modern world. But in terms of philosophy, where's the progress? Where's the progress? And you just get kind of bored, annoyed, and impatient. And his ill health probably helped move that a lot. So he's taking on Aristotelian scholasticism. He's taking on scholarly and aesthetic humanism. And he's taking on occultism, which was a big deal uh, back then as well. So the artistic hedonism and, and the Christian humanist tradition, we're talking Lorenzo Valla, Erasmus, uh, Petrarch, and so on, they're like, oh, the world is beautiful, the world is full of pleasures, and art, language, nature, everything is just wonderful, and they, they kind of steer clear of religious speculation. This kind of artistic hedonism, it was a refocus from the other world to this world, but without any discipline, without any rigor, and without any greater understanding, without any control of a nature. If you look at a beautiful painting and you appreciate the beautiful painting, look, it's a wonderful thing to do. I, I love art, and, and beauty is, is an essential part of what we, what we live for. But if you look at a beautiful painting, you haven't learned anything about the natural world. You haven't cured any diseases. You haven't built any better machineries. Uh, you haven't uh, um, come up with any uh, new knowledge that can be implied in other areas. You've simply appreciated the beauty of a lovely painting. Again, very important, nothing wrong with that. But if that's really the sole focus of the intellectual pursuit and the intellectual discipline is artistic analysis and understanding and definition and, no, oh, let's look at another beautiful statue and so on, it's like, well, that's all well and good. Can we do anything with the guys who have cataracts? No. Well, what about the guys who've got tonsillitis, appendicitis, anything? No. Well, that's not particularly helpful. Now, this esotericism or occultism is a very, very big deal, right? So this is the transubstantiation of of lead into gold and so on, and these mystical Mandela-style analogies between human beings and the universe as a whole, and they really were in hot pursuit of magic. I'm not kidding about this. Hot pursuit of magic. I mean, people would mix and match stuff and try and create stuff, uh, elixirs, these panaceas, what we would now call snake oil, uh, medicine, uh, and so on. So people were in hot pursuit of these magical potion powers over natural processes, and I think Bacon was, there's not a lot of progress with that kind of stuff. In fact, there's no progress with that kind of stuff. And he's like, okay, stop guessing, stop trying to create magic. Just do some hard work, people. Go out and study things and, and be willing to be wrong. Like, where is error? Where is error? Where is error? We, we, man, the, 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 um, born to reason in endless error, hurled the glory, jest, and riddle of the world, right? We can reason and we get things wrong a lot. Where's error? Well, for Plato, error is in the material world and the perfect forms of the blah, right? And in Aristotle, yes, error is in the mind, but it's the mind failing to understand the concepts embedded in things themselves. For Bacon, where's error? Error is not in nature. Error is not in the senses. Error is in your mind. And 
having a standard of falsifiability, can, can you be wrong? If you can't be wrong, you can't be right. It's just nonsense, right? So um, and this is one of the things, while I respect the work that the psychohistorians and Lloyd DeMoss uh, did, uh, one of the reasons I didn't go particularly far into that community is it kind of reminded me of when I was taking English, English literature. You take English literature, you read a book, and you come up with a general theory about the book, okay? There's evidence for it, but you can't read the mind of the author, and even if you could, the author may not know himself why he's doing things. Can you be wrong? Can you be wrong? That's what I want to know. How is this falsifiable? Well, the capitalists exploit the workers. Okay, how would you know if that's right? How would you know if that's wrong? What's your, what's your test? If there's no test of falsifiability, you are in indoctrination land. You are in sophist land. You are in scholastic land. Where is where does error reside? I did this show years and years ago. Where, where is error? Where does error reside? If you're incapable of error, you're a megalomaniacal narcissist. Where does the if, if the error is always in other people, right? You, you will see this when people put forward particular doctrines, and you provide counter evidence, and they say, "No, no, no, you just you don't get it." Right? I hate that phrase, by the way. You, you just don't get it, which means. I'm going to escalate verbal abuse against you and threats of ostracism and perhaps bribery if you have power in order for you to agree with me. You just don't get it, do you? You just don't understand. You are locked in a bourgeois mentality. You're a misogynist, right? Where, where, is, where is the falsifiability? You know, we, we have, I mean, two competing theories for disparate group outcomes in society. One is... Uh, uh, prejudice and, and, and bigotry and, and all kinds of misogyny and, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, that's, that's one conspiracy theory that's not, not falsifiable. Another is, well, different groups have different, make different choices, have different characteristics, and so on. And that explains a good chunk of it. One is simple, and one is, involves a vast conspiracy theory that's multilayered and involves everyone, except a few people who are enlightened and know the truth, right? The, the uh, mystical aristocracy of those who can see, right? I prefer, like, what's the simplest explanation? That everyone's just randomly bigoted and hateful and, or, or you know, there's just different groups with different characteristics. Uh, I mean, we, we all know what uh, what Occam's razor would, would say is probably true, right? So we'll touch on the idols of the mind. I don't want to make this too long, so we'll touch, I could do Francis Bacon all day, but we'll talk about the idols of the mind because it's very, very important, right? So another one of Bacon's originality was to saying, okay, why are people so wrong all the time and so committed to being wrong and so unable to admit that they're wrong and so on? So Aristotle, of course, talked about logical fallacies uh, and, and how they show up in human reasoning and reminded everyone that just about everyone operates on the realm of sophistry. But Bacon said, okay, why? So he invented this metaphor, uh, the idol, I-D-O-L, uh, why, why people are so wrong. So he said there's this four idols. And of course, we could look around the world and see that, you know, not a huge amount has changed because we haven't done for morality what Bacon did to science. We need to do for morality what Bacon has done for science, and then we will have an even greater leap forward, right? This is the reason I put myself out. That's the reason I fight so hard, is that if we can do for morality what Bacon did for the sciences, then the progress of the last 400 years will be as nothing compared to the progress of the next 400 years or 100 years for that matter. This is, this, is my, this is my life's work, right? Why I focus on it. Why voluntarism, 
peaceful parenting, UPB, all of the things that I talk about, why they've been right there from the beginning, because this is my, this is my life's work. To try and provide as many benefits to the future as Bacon provided to the physical sciences, but in the realm of morality. So if we can get there, we can get everything that I show in my novel, The Future. All right. Four idols. And this is just ways in which people are wrong. So the first is called The Idols of the Tribe. And this is innate to everyone, and it's not particular to any person, right? So these are things like, okay, our senses are going to mess us up from time to time. Or rather, we're going to misinterpret the evidence of our senses. So he says, look, you've got to use scientific instrumentation. You've got to use other people to observe what you're doing. And, you know, the, the typical example is you, you look at a pencil in a glass of water, and it looks like the pencil bends because the refraction of light on the surface of tension of the water. And so you run your finger down the pencil to see that it's not, in fact, bent, right? So scientific instruments, other people checking your observations and so on, make sure that your senses aren't giving you anything that, that you can misinterpret. Now, the other one is that we have a, an inclination or tendency to impose order on things that don't innately have order. We see that. I mean, I remember, oh gosh, this is probably 40 years ago, more and more, really. I keep forgetting I'm in my mid-50s now. So I used to go to a computer club that was in a computer store at Young and Eglinton, and they would demo programming languages, they would demo games, they would dem demo various things on the screen, and then they would turn off the computer, and for some reason, he would leave the screen running. Now, back in the day, when you had a screen running without any input, you would just see static. And I would listen to the lecturers, and I would stare at the TV, and I would see if I could picture various things in the static. Could I picture a fish swimming? Could I picture a rocket launching? My most successful one was picturing a spinning ring-shaped space station in the static. You can see this, of course. You can, you can see creatures in, in clouds. You, you can look at an ember and you can see, you know, maybe a yelling face uh, of, of fires uh, or whatever, right? So, yes, where there is no order, we tend to try to create or, or put, put order in. Now, also, we have uh, wishful thinking, right? Wishful thinking, we want things to be true. Uh, we are emotionally invested in them being true. And that is one of the reasons we get things particularly wrong. Now, we also, and this is partly just because we're mortal, we have to come to some kind of conclusions. So before we've done all the really careful and detailed note gathering and comparison with other people's notes and thoughts and so on, we jump to conclusions. And now, jumping to conclusions, we, again, we have to do it because we're mortal. We have to come to some kind of conclusions, but it, it's easy for us to do it too fast. So the second he talked about is called the Idols of the Cave. So the idols of the tribe is just common to all human beings. The idols of the cave, and this is different. This is not common to all humanity, and it could be something to do with our cultural background. It could be to do with how we were raised and those kind of stuff, right? We uh, tend to see things, right? It's the old thing. We don't see the world as the world is. We see the world as we are. So if you're raised to believe that illness is a punishment for sin, then you will morally judge people who get ill. You will morally judge yourself if you get ill. If you're raised to believe that natural disasters are the result of God's disfavor, then you will judge people harshly. What is it? There was some American fundamentalists who claimed that the 
uh, plight of New Orleans was the result of lesbianism or something like that, right? So if that's how you're raised, that's how you're going to see the world. Now, we tend to like people who agree with us. Particularly, we can go and search for authorities, we can search for experts, we can search for professionals and find that they agree with us. So if you believe that uh, vaccines are safe and effective, you'll listen to the World Health Organization. If you believe that vaccines are not those things, then you will listen to other people. And it tends to be kind of reinforcing. And it is important to look at the criticisms of your position. But we're drawn to conform with the people who agree with us. And we are born to conform to our particular cultural preferences. Uh, three, the idols of the marketplace. That's the third one. Now, uh, marketplace, the marketplace of ideas, it's, it's basically the, issue, the errors that arise from interactions with other people, and in particular, the challenges of language, right? So, I mean, you've heard me this, uh, do this in a million, time, a million debates to say, okay, what, is, uh, what, are the, what are your definitions of these things? What, what, what facts are we talking about here? Do we, can we agree on definitions? Because if we can't, we can't get anything. So the obscurantist, polysyllabic nonsense language that is used by particular professions is, is pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Like the, the, the mystics of like, oh, the we are all one. It's like, I don't even know what any of that means. And of course, if you try and unpack it, you just get more nonsense. So uh, if you use language colloquially or imprecisely or in random ways, then, you know, like so people say the good of society, it always turns out to mean the good of rulers at the expense of society or the good of particular profit seekers at the expense of, of society. You say a fair price, well, for the guy who's selling a fair price is high, for the guy who's buying a fair price is low. So you say fair, you know, or, or the rich have to pay their fair share. Okay, well, what is fairness? What does a share mean? What would be a fair share? How would we know if it was an unfair share because they were paying too much? None of that is ever explicated, right? So this is the challenge. And, and some of it's accidental. And some of it is purposeful and sophistic. So, ah, the idols of the theater. Okay, so, whew, that is something. So when something really outside the norm happens, it tends to impress itself upon us in particular detail, right? So if you uh, are, are touching a plant, or you touch a bunch of plants, and then one plant stings the hell out of you and your hand swells up and turns red, you're going to remember that plant because it's out of the norm. It's out of the ordinary. And, and, and that's obviously for obvious survival mechanisms, right? So things that are outside the norm tend to impress themselves upon us. Grand theories that explain everything, right? So the theory of exploitation, the theory of female oppression, the theory of various kinds of bigotries and so on, all of these ex are supposed to explain the world as a whole. And anything which interferes with that explanation undermines it or even attempts to complement it complemented, like to accessorize it in a sense, or, or to provide alternative ways of supporting the theory. You got one grand theory that explains everything, and that's a big grandiose thing that allows you to look at the world. Ah, that's why the world is the way it is, and this is how you explain things. And right, why why do bosses make more than workers? Because the bosses are stealing and exploiting the workers. Boom, boom, boom. Right. So we'll jump to that, and we won't take any counterexamples and anything which attempts to explain these grand theories in, an other, in another way is immoral. 
right? And, and violence can result. This is the basic idea behind censorship. That my explanation, people say this, they say, my explanation for the theory of the world is the moral. My explanation as to why things happen in the world is the moral. And morality can only be attained and sustained by people believing in this. And therefore, anybody who opposes my theory is creating real-world harm and is immoral, if not evil. And because they are creating real-world harm, you are justified in using self-defense to silence them. Right? The vaccines are safe and effective. Right? This is the, this, true or not, right? It's the hypothesis. Therefore, anybody who questions that is creating real-world harm and should be silenced, right? So, we also do this with regards to, uh, to our childhoods, right? So, if, if I had said, like, my mom's way off the bell curve in terms of dysfunction, right? And peculiar female dysfunction. So, she is like probably one in 10,000 women in terms of dysfunction. Now, of course, she had a very vivid and powerful impression upon me when I was a child, as all parents do for their children. And so if I were to say my mother represents the essence of femininity and take her extreme dysfunction to be some sort of statement about humanity as a whole, then that I would be falling prey to the idols of the theater to take the wild exception from the general principle and make my philosophy centered on that. Are there men who hate women? Yes. Is there a political patriarchy that oppresses all women? Um, that's a more challenging thesis to, right? So you take the one, right? Oh, my father beat on my mother and verbally abused her and, and put her down all the time. And that's, that's an exception. That's an exception. But then if you say, I'm going to take that exception and make it a general principle or rule of society, that you're falling prey to the idols of the theater. Do not judge the general by the exceptional. And there used to be a statement which is called this, the, the exception that proves the rule, which kind of means, okay, yeah, uh, Asian people tend to be shorter than, than Swedish people. Ah, but I knew a tall Asian guy. It's like, well, you remember him because he's an exception to the rule. He's the exception that proves the rule because you remember it, right? So, I mean, yes, people are influenced by things that happen in their childhood, but it's not determinism, right? People are influenced by other people, but other people don't control you. So other people... Uh, bosses are paid more than employees, but all you're doing is looking at one benefit and none of the drawbacks. In the physical sciences, I mean, Bacon has won, no question. But the primitivism of the social sciences, which really are not sciences at all anymore, but really confirmation biases of anxiety and hatred-provoking sophistry, Bacon has won unequivocally in the physical sciences. And... His criticisms, though, and, and this is one of the reasons why the social sciences had to be hived off from the physical sciences, because if you're going to take the same rigorous approach to the social sciences that Bacon demanded and achieved in the physical sciences, in other words, oh, I know a couple of work. I didn't like being a worker. I seemed to like a lot, make a lot of money. Okay, that's your instance. That's your localized perception and part, partly subjective as well. And then to say, well, workers are exploited by capitalists. Well, that's that's a huge leap. That's going from a tiny instance, a localized instance, or a, a, a narrative or a story. Oh, I know a guy who, and you can see this in, in modern medicine where people say, oh, well, I took this medicine and I was fine, or my friend took this medicine and, and my friend got ill. And it's like, these are just instances. And then people want to go to a big 
giant ass conclusion from these instances, leaping right over. Well, that's a huge mistake. A huge mistake. It is the patient gathering of information and the analysis of it having the opposite, right? So if you say all A is B, then finding stuff that says, oh, A is in the category B, A is in the category B, you're not doing much to prove it. But if you can find one thing where A is not B, well, then you have really done something useful. Finding the counterexamples is how you make sure that your theory is accurate, constantly refining it, right? So you come up with a hypothesis, you share it, you gather patient data, and the moment you find an an opposite instance or something which contradicts your hypothesis, then you've got to readjust your hypothesis to constantly hit the moving target called the truth. Refine, refine, refine. But we just want to settle into facts that we profit from, that we exploit, that we, you know, it's funny, the capitalists exploit the workers. Oh, no, 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 no. The the academics exploit the workers because the academics force the workers to pay for their academia, which undermines the wages of the workers by creating more and more government control over the economy. So, I mean, it's all projection and nonsense as far as all of that goes. But yeah, leaping straight from a couple of instances to a general theory without looking for counterexamples, right? Can you, can you find a capitalist who's not exploiting his workers? Okay, well, if you can, then you can't say cap- all capitalists exploit their workers and you've learned something new and you've got to have a more su- subtle and sophisticated and refined thing. So we go from the instance to the theory way too quickly and then we try and work the theory back to explain things in the middle. And he's saying, no, 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 if you want to build a pyramid, you start with a big base, a lot of experiments, you get theories that you can't build the top without building the base first. It's ridiculous. It's deranged. And we can see this all the time, just conclusions, 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 and moral conclusions, right? Well, this is evil, and this is virtuous, and these people are fascists, and these people are Nazis, and right, all this sort of stuff is going on from a couple of instances, right? You judge one group, oh, there was a violent guy in this one group, therefore the whole group is, is bad, or, you know, someone, someone listened to this, uh, uh, this, this thinker, and then this someone did a bad thing, therefore the thinker is bad. You're just straight from an instance to a general theory with no patient growth, no patient development. That's really bad. And you can see all these conclusions being jumped to, and all of these idols are everywhere. And we desperately, desperately, desperately need to bring the rigor and humility of Bacon's approach to the indoctrinated sophists of his time. Aristotle thought for himself, thinking like Aristotle is not being Aristotle. You're not understanding Aristotle if you think that pursuing Aristotle's thought is Aristotelian. No, Aristotle thought for himself. The way you emulate and respect and learn from Aristotle is to think for yourself, not photocopy Aristotle. So we desperately need this. Or, uh, like, if we don't get the revolution in morals that Bacon gave to the physical sciences, we lose everything. Because the Baconian revolution in science has given rulers so much power, knowledge, and control and information that if we don't have a similar revolution in morals then the advancements of the last 400 years will be more of a curse than a blessing and who knows if we ever get out freedomain.com forward slash donate thank you so much my friends I'll talk to you soon